invite you to uh, open up to Genesis chapter 6 is where we'll be, Genesis 6. You're going to need a little more energy than that uh, for this morning. So we're uh, in Genesis 6, which is the flood story. So uh, we got to bring it, okay? We need our emotional A-games this morning um, for Noah and the flood. We're in a sermon series right now where we are uh, looking at some of the foundational stories that are right up front in our Bible and our scriptures. And so um, there's a reason that these stories are right up front. They're supposed to kind of set the foundation for us. They're foundational stories. They're supposed to kind of give us the lens by which we can view the rest of the scriptures. And so last week we looked at Cain and Abel. Uh, we saw some, some pretty powerful truths in the Cain and Abel story. Um, in particular, the nature of sin. So when God names sin, the first time it's named in the scriptures... It's a, a personal force. It's personified. It's this evil force that's trying to take away the life that God has given us in creation. Um, often we think of sin as like an impersonal, arbitrary rule that we break. Um, and in fact, in the scriptures, uh, throughout the scriptures, it's personified. It's the slave master. It's this kind of power that would want to come and rob from us uh, what God would desire from us. And so the first time God names sin in the Bible with Cain and Abel when it comes to Cain is actually a word of protection and warning. Uh, he tells Cain, like, look... This is a really bad thing. You don't realize it at the time, but this is going to master you. This is going to completely own you and destroy you. So you've got to be careful. You've got to master this. And so we're moving on in the narrative, okay? And so the next big story um, that's right at the beginning of our scriptures is the flood story. And so um, we'll be in Genesis 6, uh, and that's kind of where we'll spend our time. The flood story goes from 6 through 9. Um, so it takes up a big chunk here at the beginning of our Bibles. Um, Noah's been popular lately. So we had the Hollywood movie come out a couple months ago. Anyone see it? A couple people aside, okay, there are mixed reviews. As Christians, we've always got to kind of put up our nose at things sometimes, okay? So there are a lot of us that didn't like it for various reasons. I thought it was fine, um, but it definitely was like a sexy take on Noah, right? You got Russell Crowe, okay? He is, he reminds me a lot of myself as an actor. Um, and so it's just a great movie. And then, uh, I don't know if you've seen this, but uh, there's a Nissan commercial, that kind of uh, commercial that echoes the Noah story. It's one of those things where, until this week, I'd never seen it, but once you start thinking about the story, you see it like a dozen times. So yesterday, when I was watching the, the Spurs beat the uh, Thunder, um, Texas teams, okay, uh, we, uh, I saw this commercial like 12 times. I don't know if you've seen it. It's this little Nissan car they've got coming out, and they're driving through the rain and the mud and the storm, and they're picking up animals, and it's singing a song like two by two. And I'm like, I guess this is like the arc of our time. I don't know what's going on here, but this is, um, they're echoing this kind of biblical story as the Nissan kind of drives through the, um, the terrain there. So Noah's gotten some, some press. Uh, in fact, at the Bible Gateway, the little uh, Bible app, they can keep track of the stats of like who looks at what and that kind of thing. And so they did keep track with the Noah. And so for all the bad press that some of the Christians gave Noah and those kind of things, the statistics for who went and read the Noah story in the Bible like skyrocketed, like out through the roof. Um, and so as Christians, I think we always want to be known for what we support more than what we hate, okay, and looking for the best in certain things. So if a movie's not even like supposed to be about a Bible story, I'm trying to look for something that we can compare it to, right, to Jesus and to the gospel. And so with Noah, I'm like, let's take that and let's run with it, right? I mean, you can go to the text if you don't like it, if it's not accurate enough for you, those kind of things. And people did. Um, Interestingly enough, the flood story has been popular for a long time. So well before Russell Crowe, okay, put on the outfit. Um, in fact, the flood story, so a story about a flood that comes and destroys most of humanity is probably the most popular story in all of history. Um, and what I mean by that is if you go back and like you're an ancient historian, you can find over 200 different versions of the flood story from different separate cultures um, that aren't connected. 
Uh, it's the most universal story from ancient history. Um, all these cultures from all these different places that never came into contact with each other all wrote these stories about a flood that are remarkably similar. And when I say remarkably similar, what I mean is the same details, like um, a flood came, wiped out most of humanity. There was a Noah character, obviously not Noah in these other stories, but who built a ship, okay, and went on the ship and was saved. They came off. There was a dove and a raven. There was a sign. There was a new covenant. I mean, remarkably similar um, to the point where there are some people who say, right, we're copying. Everyone's copying from each other. There's just one story. I think, though, having so many stories doesn't undermine the Bible as much as we might think, right? In a backwards way, it kind of supports, right? I mean, if everybody's talking about a flood from thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, that kind of supports the idea that maybe there was some kind of flood, right? I mean, everyone has this kind of vague memory and these details of the puzzle that they're putting together and these stories that they're, they're telling. Now, we'll talk about these other flood stories because one of the things we can learn from the flood story in the Bible is by comparing it to these other flood stories. And we'll see there's some interesting differences between the way the Bible tells the story of the flood versus some of these other ancient tales. Um, so the flood story is popular. It's always been popular. I think it's one of the more misunderstood stories, um, particularly among Christians, because we have a tendency to, I think, get caught up in, in the wrong details sometimes when it comes to stories. In particular, what happens with Noah and the flood is we get really strung out on whether it happened or not, so the historicity of it and like evidence. And so really, I've never heard a sermon on the flood. I've heard a couple presentations on it, and it's always like, here's the archaeological evidence, right, for why the flood happened and those kind of things. And I'm reminded of a biblical scholar who gave a sermon on Adam and Eve and the serpent once. And after the sermon, a, a woman from the congregation came up to him and said, Man, I can't get over the fact that the serpent could talk. Like, it's so crazy. We know we have snakes. They can't talk, that kind of thing. And he looked at her, and he was kind of real quizzical looking. and He almost looked disappointed. Uh, and, and she goes, what are, you, what are you thinking? And he goes, you missed the point. He said, the point wasn't that the serpent could talk. The point was what he said. Right? And so, and, and kind of getting caught up in trying to prove it, like apologetically, and just get down the fact that it happened, you missed what happened. Right? I mean, you missed the kind of point of the story, what it was trying to tell you about God, what it was trying to set you up um, in terms of like a foundation for you to understand God and for you to understand his relationship to the world. And so this morning I want to look at the flood story um, and I want to point out two really important truths that kind of kind of jump out at us that I think um, should kind of serve foundationally for us as we think about God and as we read the rest of the scripture and those kind of things. So um, we'll start in verse 5 in Genesis 6. You'll see there's some uh, so there's some good stuff in here in the flood story. Okay, so, so Genesis 6, verse 5, this is where the story starts. Verse 1 through 4, interesting in and of themselves, but in verse 5, we get the, the flood story started. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Notice the universality of these words, every, only, continually. Things are bad. Verse 6, And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. <clears throat> So the Lord said, I'll blot out man, whom I've created from the face of land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These were the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. 
Behold, I'll destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark. Cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you're to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50. Its height, 30. Make a roof for the ark. Finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, once again, I'll bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, speaking to Noah, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives, um, your sons' wives with you. So we'll stop there. What's happened in Genesis 6 is the sin that has introduced, um, begun to be introduced into the world through Adam and Eve, um, continues to spiral out of control, okay? So it continues to spread. Think of it like a cancer, okay, which infects a patient, starts in one organ system, and it slowly but surely grows and grows and grows. So you have Adam and Eve disobeying God. Then you have their son killing somebody. He murders his brother, Abel. And then you'll remember it's only a few verses, so you have his great-great-great-great-grandson who's like killing everybody, right? I mean, if you look at him the wrong way, he's like, I'm going to kill you. It's it's spiraling out of control. It's like a snowball building momentum as it goes down the hill. And then we get a couple chapters further and God looks out and says, it's all bad. It's not just Cain killing his brother. It's not just Lamech overreacting to everything. All of them are evil all the time. There's violence everywhere, he says. Then verse 5, if you look, he says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man. This is a play on words, it seems, of Genesis 1, where God sees his creation and says what? It's what? It's good. He looks out, he saw, and he said, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. He says it seven times. It's very good. Now, though, a sin has spiraled and spiraled and spiraled and spread and spread and spread. He looks out and he says, it's it's bad. There's wickedness everywhere. They're killing each other. They've completely... They've completely stained my world with the blood of their brothers and their sisters and their neighbors. There's wickedness everywhere. He says that every intention of the thoughts of their hearts were evil continually. Every intention, all the time, in all situations. He looks out and it's bad. In particular, he highlights the violence. If you look in verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. He wants to end all flesh because they're just violent all the time. Again, this is kind of the history of humanity. We're still kind of like this, right? Um, we'll see this later on in the story, but this fact that, that wickedness abounds in our world is not something that changes after the flood. It's still like that today. We could say probably that God still looks out and he sees a world full of all kinds of things that aren't supposed to be here. And full of people doing things they're not supposed to do. And sometimes that can be hard for you and I to accept because of our social situation. So it's easier for us to go, it doesn't seem like everybody's really bad. It doesn't seem like the world's that bad when we're in a very comfortable situation, right? But if you were one of like 80% of the world who's being oppressed and living in in dire poverty and and knows violence in their own family has seen people killed around them and, and lives under the threat of violence day to day, you might agree that, that the world that they see around them is not the world that God had intended. It truly is not the world that God looked at and said, this is good. This is good. So violence, evil has continued to kind of build up. Um, and so you'll notice, this is a really important point, this is why the flood is sent. Okay? This is the kind of cause, the catalyst for God to send these waters to drown everybody except for Noah and his family. It's interesting because, again, if you compare the biblical account of the flood to other accounts of the flood, you'll see very few other flood stories name a moral problem 
for why the flood comes. My favorite is uh, a flood story that comes. Um, it's one of the more famous ones. You have the Gilgamesh epic, which you might have heard about. That's got a famous flood story. Um, and then the Atrahasis epic. Um, and this is my favorite because the reason the flood comes in this uh, ancient Near Eastern story is because the gods had made humans, right? Um, now, in the biblical creation story, God made humans to be in his image, to serve with him and for him. Um, but in this creation story, the gods make humans to be slaves because they don't want to work, right? So this way you have the gods bringing you food and stuff like that. So we can kick back and you can do the work for us. It's kind of like, it's our ant force, right? They got us in this little like ant container, ant form. That's what it's called, right? Uh, so, I mean, we're scurrying and going about and going about. But what the gods didn't realize is that human beings are loud. We're really, really noisy people. I don't know if you've ever been in a room full of like middle school girls, okay? And it just, it like escalates really quickly. Or in a lunchroom, if you've ever been in like a lunchroom with kids, this like the sum of these parts are more than the individual parts. There's something magical happening with the volume level in this room. Um, well, that's what human beings are like to the gods in this epic. And so um, the gods can't sleep, actually, because humans are so stinking noisy. And so they send the flood because they just need some rest. And this is why the flood comes, right, in the Atreus' epic, because human beings are so loud and we haven't slept in forever, and we just need some peace and quiet. It's like um, parents who just had a kid, right, and the kid's loud and they're not getting any sleep. We've got some friends who just got a little puppy dog, and it's apparently like a kid, right? They're up every hour, taking it outside, it's crying and whining, and they're just not enjoying life, right? That's what the gods are like. But here God looks out, and he's, he's not sleep-deprived. Right? And he's not, he's not just getting, not getting what he wanted from his creation. He looks out and he sees a moral problem. He says, They're not, they've ruined my creation. These free agents I've created have not chosen to follow me and enjoy my creation. They've, they've decided to, to uncreate it, kill it, to take it down a path that it shouldn't be going down. Now, I want to point out two things to you, okay? Two truths that I think are where the text is pushing us. Two things that I think the text is trying to say, Pay attention to this. This is where the action is. This is what you need to take away. You'll find it in verse 6, okay? So, so God looks out. He sees all the wickedness of man. And look at what happens in verse 6. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. Now, that is a huge statement. And we could just read this 20 times and call it a day, okay? The Lord looks out. He sees it. And he's sorry that he made human beings. That he made the creation they're destroying. He regrets that decision. It grieves him to his heart. He looks out, he's sorry, and he's full of grief. He's full of pain. This is, I think, actually where the real action happens in the Genesis story, in the flood story. Um, what happens to Noah, if you, if you really go pay attention to it, it's not very detailed right? You don't learn much about Noah in the story. In fact, he doesn't talk, I don't think at all. He sure doesn't talk for most of the story. The, really, the only detail we get of his life right now is that he walked with God, right? And then you can just extrapolate from that. We don't know anything about him, right? Other characters, we get conversations and family information and all kinds of stuff. We know very little about Noah. He's what we call like a static character, right? He's two-dimensional. The, the story's not trying to teach you a lesson about Noah, right? But we do get a lot of information about God. In fact, this is the first time in the Bible you get an inside peek into what's happening inside of God. Like, like his emotional reaction to something. The curtain pulls back and you get to look inside of the inner workings of God. This is a really bold statement. 
by whoever's writing this, okay? Moses writing Genesis. He, he peels back the curtain and says, this is what God's feeling. This is what's happening inside of him on some level. He's sorry and he's grieved. Up until this, we really have no information about the inner workings of God. Um, in Genesis 1, you get a little bit because he's talking. He says it's good, right? So he sees it. It's good. Nothing bad's happened. And so you just know he's enjoying it, right? From then on out, there's, there's very little emotionally charged language. Even when Adam and Eve fall, he just, it's a curse, okay? He doesn't seem upset. He, there's no real peek into his thought process, his life, his emotional reaction. Um, even with Cain, right? And he shows up and he wants to protect Cain. I mean, there's not, the attention's not paid to God, okay? And to what's happening inside of him and how he's reacting. But here, when sin reaches its kind of climax in all of creation, the author says, what I want you to see is, I want you to see his reaction. And his reaction, I think, is surprising. Because what I would expect, and I think what most of us by default think when we ask ourselves, how does God react to sin? So how does God react when you sin? Like when you really screwed up royally? Or how does he react to like sinners in the world? To like really evil people in the world? What's his, what's his gut primal default emotional reaction? How does he relate to those situations, those people? I think what we'd normally say and think, if you're anything like me, is anger. He's upset. He's mad. He's ticked off. He wants to punish them and hurt them. I grew up in the Bible Belt, which means I was fed a very healthy diet of God's anger. Okay? God is angry at you. God is upset at you. Um, the kind of climax of this kind of theological theme is this classic sermon by Jonathan Edwards. Sinners in the hands of a angry God, right? Your spider's dangling from a web above a flame. And there's a God waiting to just crush you. At any moment, he's going to crush you. And he wants to crush you. He's salivating at the mouth. He's so upset at how you've ruined his world and done wrong by him. And with the little bit of time you might have before you get dropped in that flame, you better try to do something about it. But in Genesis, the flood is not what happens to sinners in the hands of an angry God. The flood is what happens to sinners in the hands of a sad God. Anger's not even mentioned. I mean, it's not on the radar at this point. And this fits in with Genesis 4, right? I mean, when God names sin, he doesn't name it to condemn, to judge, to be really angry about it. He's not upset about it. He names it to protect, to caution, to warn. And then when he sees it continue out of control, he goes, no, this is not what I wanted. This is not good. This is not what you need to be involved in. And he's, he's pained by it. It hurts him. He suffers because of his commitment to creation. Now, don't get me wrong. There is anger in the Bible, okay? There's a legitimate emotional description of God and his response to sin. God gets angry, um, and God has wrath. Okay, the wrath of God you hear a lot. Um, but I would argue, theologically, that you need to understand God's wrath and anger underneath the concept of his, his sadness or his grief or his love. God is angry not in the way that a soldier is angry at an enemy, where he just wants to wipe <laughs> him off the face of the earth and blow him up. He's angry the way a lover is angry when her lover betrays her. He's angry because he loves. Does that make sense? He's angry because he's committed. That's why it hurts him, because he cares, because he'd rather not be that way, because he's emotionally invested in the, the other, in the situation, in the person. And so he sees it, and he gets angry. But it's not the, the 
kind of cruel, casual anger of a judge just waiting to pounce on you and condemn you and criminalize you and put you in prison. It's the anger of someone who loves you more than you can imagine. It's the anger of a parent who's frustrated at their child, their wayward son, who just won't accept their offer of love and redemption. It's the anger of a friend who's had his trust broken as he sees his friend wander off and make poor decisions after poor decisions after poor decisions. It's not anger in the sense of, I'm done with you, I hope you die. It's sadness. It's grief. It's betrayal. This is the picture we get of God. This is his, I would suggest, primary kind of emotional response to sin. When you sin, when I sin, when he looks out on the world. And I think it makes a big difference that we get this, like get this on the core of who we are. If we think primarily in terms of anger, when we think about God's relationship to the world, what happens, I would argue, is we become people who are afraid of God because he's angry at us. And he's very powerful, right? Like, he can kind of kill all of us at once. He's, he's angry. And so when I say I'm, I'm scared. It's like a dad, an abusive dad, right? And I'm afraid. I'm afraid that he's waiting for any little small mistake to pounce on. He's a cruel judge waiting to get me. Or, and I think this might be worse, I think God's the enemy of my enemies. And God might love me, but he hates the people conveniently that I hate. God's angry at the rest of the world. He's angry at the people that I don't like. He's angry at the people that aren't in my circle, that aren't in my squad, who aren't in my social situation. This is, I think, how you get people like the Westboro Baptist protesters, right? They've fueled God's anger towards the people that they disagree with. And so when they think of how God would look at other people who are doing things they would disagree with, right, they think of a, an all-powerful, angry, venomous, wrathful deity who wants to pounce and destroy. So they hold signs saying, God hates you. But imagine if, if the signs didn't say God hates you, but said God got sad because he wants to see a better life for you. Because he loves you so much and, and, and you're off the track here. I mean, imagine how that would change how you would interact with people if you made the jump from anger to sadness in the context of a love and a commitment. And imagine how that might change how you experience God yourself when you fall, when you come short. To see him as, as not one who's, who's ready to kick you to the curb, but one who goes, man, I, I wanted better for you, and I still want better for you. I love you, and I'm committed to you. I'm, I'm grieved that that happens. It hurts me that you've gone this way. But it hurts me because I want what's better for you. It hurts me because I want what's best for you. We talked about this a little bit last week again with sin, right? I mean, when, when God gives instruction or law, this is like advice. This is not trying to like demoralize us or take the fun and joy and peace out of our lives. This is him going, here's, here's the greener grass. I mean, here's what's better for you. <coughs> and when you don't do this, I'm not, I'm not this arbitrary judge who just wants to hurt you. I'm this sad friend who goes, you didn't see what was better. This is, this is better for you. This was the best path. So the, the Genesis text gives us this window into God's heart. And it's extremely interesting. He's sorry. This word for sorry in Hebrew, it's naham, um, which in, in English you'd spell it N-A-H-A-M. Um, and it, your English translation in the ESV is what we're reading from, kind of softens it for you to try to tone it down a little bit so that you're kind of okay with getting into this. Um, it, it means when it's talking about a human being, it means to change your mind or to repent. It's often translated repent. 
like to make a decision and then to turn around and make another decision. Be like, that was a wrong decision. Um, sometimes it's translated regret or to be sorry. That's what your ESV does here. Um, if you look at different English translations, you'll see people do it all kinds of different ways. And most of them try to soften it a bit for you. Because we have a hard time understanding how God could regret a decision. God looks out at humanity and goes, I kind of wish I didn't make them. I mean, to us, you think in terms of God knowing the future completely, okay, 100%, and you go, how can you be sorry about something if you knew exactly what would happen? And we think of God as like this unchanging, unmovable mover, right? I mean, he, he's not touched by anything. He's, he barely feels emotion. He barely reacts to situations. But in fact, what you'll find, um, this word, Naham, is used of God dozens and dozens of dozens of times in the Old Testament. Um, so when God goes to Moses and says, I'm going to kill all the Israelites because they worship the golden calf. Do you remember this in Exodus? They worship the golden calf right after they get out of the, the uh, Egyptian slavery. And God says, I'm going to kill all of them. And Moses says, ah, I'd rather if you didn't. And kind of like debates with them a little bit. If you remember, I mean, it's, God sounds like a very like just upset person. He's, he actually tells Moses, leave me alone for a minute. Like, go away from me. Let me burn in my wrath. And Moses is not, he disobeys God. He stays there and he, he confronts him. He says, no, don't do this. And he gives him reasons. And it says, and God changed his mind or repented. He changed course. He said, I'm going to kill them all. Moses talks to him and he says, okay, I won't kill them all. And then if you remember later on, Abraham does this real famously. God comes to Abraham and says, hey, I'm going to destroy this city. And Abraham kind of bargains him down. And God changes his mind. He changes course. Um, in fact, this is so common in the Old Testament, it eventually finds its way into creeds about God. Um, so a creed is like a formulaic statement of what we believe about God. So the Israelites had this real famous creed about God um, that went, he's slow to anger and abounding in mercy. Do you remember this? It's repeated all throughout the Old Testament. It's real common. And what you'll find is over time, as it appears later and later in later books, um, they add a phrase to it. The creed expands a little bit, and they add this phrase, he repents of his wrath. He changes his mind of his wrath. Because it was such a common event for God to have judgment and then to be convinced to show mercy. It's almost at times like God's looking for any excuse to show mercy. So we might say God is, is changeable in a consistent way, right? I mean, he changes in consistent nature to his character, to his love, to his desire to repent, for his desire to, to redeem his creation. Um, and so um, God is sorry. He regrets that he's made um, humans, it grieves them to his heart. And then what I want you to see is, um, you'll notice in verse 5, okay, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Flip to chapter 8, and we're going to look at verse 20. Chapter 8, verse 20. Again, the flood story itself is kind of unremarkable. The details are surprisingly similar to all these other flood stories. Um, we're trying to point out some of the differences. Here's the second big theme, I think, coming at, right at your face, all right, from this text that really wants to push on how you see God and how you understand his relationship to the world. It's after the flood, okay? The floods come, <coughs> takes everyone out, except for Noah, the animals on the ark. In verse 20, in chapter 8, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, and he said in his heart, so we get another peek into what's happening inside, in a sense of God. He says in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Watch that phrase. We're going to think about that a little, a little 
kind of deeply, all right? He says, I'll never curse the ground again, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Now, just so we're all clear, before the flood, every intention of man's heart was evil. After the flood, is that still true? Yeah. And actually, before the flood, the reason God sends judgment is because every intention of man's heart is evil. But after the flood, the reason God won't send another flood is because man's heart was continually evil. Something has changed. But is it humanity? Have human beings changed what they're doing? Has God changed in how he's reacting? Yeah. In fact, the, the big change that happens in the flood story is in God. In, is in his reaction to man's heart being wicked continually. Before the flood, he sees it, it grieves him, and he says, I want to wipe it out and start over with Noah. After the flood, he says, I'm not ever going to do that again. He, he limits himself. He limits the options available to him in the future. This is kind of one of the points of the flood story that sometimes we miss out on. Um, we read the flood story and we come away with this sense of kind of fear and trembling because God can send a flood and kill all of us, right? And, and maybe there should be a sense of that in the story. But really the point of the story is, guess what? He's not going to do it. Like a change has happened. God's made a promise in history. And for all of eternity, this is not going to happen again. He's chosen not to react to evil in this way. He has limited his options in the future. He's made a promise to be faithful and loving and patient to redeem and pursue as much as he possibly can. I think something significant is happening here. You could uh, translate that for as although. I think that would read better. Um, people have problems um, when you compare these two. It's, it's hard. To, um, so interpreters will go, this seems like a contradiction. I mean, it just seems awful. Um, but if you, you hear that for as although, right? I'll never destroy the world again even though, although, man's heart is evil continually. Every thought is wicked all the time. What happens, I think, as God sends out this flood, is that he's faced with a choice, which is either to completely uncreate everything, or to deal with the violence and the pain that he's feeling, and the suffering that he's going through, and the sadness he's experiencing in a different way. He can either get rid of creation or keep it and suffer. And what happens is he decides to keep it and suffer. In a sense, God says, we're going to play this out until it's a bloody end. Despite what this costs me, despite the personal sacrifice it might take of me, I'm not abandoning the project. He, he kind of realizes, in a sense, God kind of goes through this, this act of judgment, the flood comes, and he realizes that this doesn't deal with the problem. God uncreates as much as possible, right? The floods come, so this is like creation backwards. He separates the water, and now he just gets rid of it, right? The separation. The waters come. He gets rid of it as much as possible. There's just Noah left, and Noah's on the ark, and the animals are on the ark, and his family's on the ark. And guess what else is on the ark? Sin. And Noah gets off the ark, and if you read the story, like, right after he gets off the ark, right, this is the righteous man, this is the man we're going to start over with, he gets blackout drunk, 
and gets in this really awkward situation with his family, and you're like, seriously? We're back at square one that quickly? I mean, he, this is the guy who was the one righteous person in all the world. And as soon as he gets off, he, he can't control himself. This is a real shameful, awkward encounter that he has. I mean, he drinks so much that his mind turns off, right? And his body goes all eye of the tiger. And it's like, let's keep going. And something bad happens in the night with his family. And we're going, this is who we're starting over with. Evil is retarded in a sense, right? It's slowed, but it's not gotten rid of. And so God has a choice to make. He can either keep sitting in the flood, because every generation is just as violent and just as wicked, and see the same results, or he can say, we'll have to do something different. And I might have to do this the hard way. If I want to keep this creation, if I want to save it and redeem it, I'm just going to have to be grieved. I'm going to have to be sad. And it might even cost me my life. But I'm making a choice now, a choice symbolizing the rainbow, to pursue and to love and to chase after that creation. I'm not going to destroy it. In a big sense, the point of the flood story is the opposite of the flood. It's this covenant, right? It's this rainbow. It's this promise. This is not the relationship I'm pursuing with creation. I'm coming to creation saying, I will love and I will redeem even if it takes all the time in the world, even if it takes my entire life to its bloody end, to Jesus, God in the flesh, on the cross, actually pouring out his life. This is where the flood story is leading. God suffers for and with and because of his creation and says, I don't care what it costs, but I love you and I'm committed and I'm not going away. The text shows us God's emotional response to sin and I think it shows us God's ultimate reaction to sin his ultimate choice of how he's going to respond to sin in the world he's not going to respond with judgment with destruction he's going to respond with a, a rescue mission even if it means personal sacrifice on his behalf which is what as people who follow Christ it's what we believe happened this culminates and God's suffering in a way that we can't even imagine because he's not willing to just destroy us, kick us out. He says, I'll chase you down. I don't care what it costs. I want you. No matter how bad you hurt me, no matter how much grief you cause me. Again, I think if we really let that sink in to the like inner crooks and nannies of our souls, I think we might engage with the world in a different way. If we thought that was God's ultimate commitment to the world, then perhaps we would be able to give ourselves to God's mission in a way that's similar. Where we would go, I'll pursue and I'll dig in and I'll chase his kingdom here on earth, this is heaven, despite what it costs me. Despite how much people hurt me. Even if it takes my life, I'll be wholeheartedly committed which might lead to people who do crazy things like love their enemies, who are willing to, to even be martyrs, who are willing to actually say, yeah, I'm going to be for you, even if you kill me for it. Because I know no other way. Because this is the God that I worship. Because this is who I see in the flood story. And this is who I see on the cross. 
We let these foundational stories sink in and we let them frame how we see God and how we read the rest of the scriptures. And I think they, they do a powerful work in us. I think sometimes we, we get these kind of maybe wrong stepping stones as our foundations and they can kind of lead us into these unhealthy places in our Christian walk. One of the powerful things I think about stories like the flood is they, they bring us back to the beginning and back to the fundamentals. What does God's heart look like? What's his reaction to sin? He says, I, I can't do it this way. I have to do it by being with them and being patient and long-suffering and by taking the, the fall for them, by pursuing them. And so we think about the flood. We think about God's sorrow in our lives and the lives of the people around us. We think about his commitment um, that we've seen fulfilled through a son, that we continue to experience through his spirit dwelling inside of us. Um, and we're called, I think, to emulate him. I think we're called to have hearts that are sad when we see evil and violence in the world. I think we're called to, to be people who love, regardless of the cost, regardless of the consequences. I think we are to be the embodiment of this commitment to the world, of Jesus' commitment to the world. I think God doesn't look like an angry, venomous, foaming-at-the-mouth enemy. I think he looks like Jesus when he's sitting in front of Jerusalem and he's crying. Remember this scene in the Gospels in Luke? He, he comes to Jerusalem to his people. He wanted to rescue them and, and save them, and they're rejecting him. And he doesn't sit up there and go, you get everything you deserve in. I can't wait to see you burn. He cries. That's his heart. That's his reaction. He says, there's still time for you to listen to me. When we see Jesus in the gospel saying repent, I don't think we, we should hear that in an angry tone, like, like street preachers in New York. I think we should hear that in like a parent's tone. Like, seriously, this is a better decision. Come this way. There's life here. There's peace here. There's joy here. So we celebrate this morning um, God's heart and God's commitment to us from seen ultimately in his son and his sacrifice on our behalf. Would you pray with me?